Parents, if you have children here with you ages 3 to 7 and you would like them to participate in Children's Church, uh, they are dismissed at this time for that. Two nurseries next door for children at the age of 3. If you need to use those, please feel free to do so at any time during the remainder of the service. The rest of you take out your Bibles and turn once again this week to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And when you found Deuteronomy chapter 4, turn over to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and keep your finger there. So, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 12. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ernest Hemingway, the man who in the 1930s and 1940s defined macho, a wild-living, hard-drinking man who prided himself on having no moral code and living that way, had a background that might surprise you. He was born in Oak Park, Illinois, a town just 10 miles outside of Chicago that was described as the place where the bars ended and the churches began. Frank Lloyd Wright, the famous architect, was also from that town, and and he described the town as a church, uh, as a town of so many churches for so many good people. Hemingway's grandparents graduated from Wheaton College, and they were good friends with the famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody, the man who established Moody Bible Church in Chicago and Moody Bible Institute. Once Hemingway read every word of the King James Bible, and as a young man, he was his church youth group's program chairman and then its treasurer. Well, the Hemingways lived with their widowed grandfather for a period, and the grandfather would lead the family in devotions. And after the Bible lesson was over, the grandfather would kneel and pray this prayer. If we expose ourselves to the flaming purity of Jesus, we are forced to admit that we are in the need of cleansing. We feel the sharp lash of his rebuke. Our conscience is forced to quiver in pain and humiliation and in shame. We may turn from his fury and flee, but there is no escape. That's the kind of harsh, frightening view of God that Hemingway grew up with. And his parents, like his grandfather, were demanding and legalistic. And when when Hemingway was a little boy, he would sit on his father's lap and his father would criticize him for saying things in the wrong way. And he would spank him. And then he would order him to get on his knees and beg God for forgiveness. How much of this presentation of God that Hemingway saw in his home growing up, what influence that had on the decisions he would make later in his life or his turning away from from God, I I don't know the answer to that. But, But I know this, that our view of God, your view and my view, influences how we live our lives and the choices that we make. Because we have a view of God as someone to love, someone to hate, someone to ignore, as someone to dismiss, as someone to to serve or to please, or as someone to try to destroy. Whatever your view of God is, it's going to manifest itself in the behaviors of your life. So what is your view of God, really? 
The verse we're going to consider this morning in Deuteronomy is also repeated in the book of Hebrews. It's an often quoted verse, and it's a verse that greatly impacted me throughout my life, and sometimes not in a way that was always good. But what is it that God wants us to believe about him based on the verses that we're going to read this morning? Well, let's find out. If you have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Moses is speaking to the people before they enter the promised land, and he says, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he hath made with you, and do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now over, chapter 5, verse 1. Moses summoned all of Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us. With all of us who are alive here today, the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. And now, over in verse 22, Moses in between gives the Ten Commandments. And he says, These are the commandments of the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he addressed, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us. And we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. And now in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
If they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from Him who warns us from heaven? At that time, His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would add your blessing to this reading and hearing of your holy word, and that you, O Spirit of God, would lead us into truth this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I had a dilemma when I first started my teaching career as a high school English teacher. I truly wanted the students to really be able to to learn from me. But I also wanted to open doors so that I could have an influence in their lives that went beyond, you know, Shakespeare. Well, I wasn't sure how to accomplish both of those goals, but I knew that if I were to accomplish the first goal, which was actually teaching them something, then I was going to have to have an ordered, well-disciplined classroom. Because I was a new teacher. And I was only a few years older than my students, and I knew if I didn't, they would run all all over me, and we would have a a miserable year. I wouldn't be able to teach, and, and they wouldn't be able to learn. So, I was really strict. And without a smile on my face, I matter of factly enforced all the class rules, and I nailed every infraction of every rule. So, I was a little conflicted when I overheard two students talking in the hall between classes at the beginning of the year. One student said to the other, oh, well, who did you get for English this year? To which the second student replied, oh, I have that new Mr. Bailey. I hate him. (laughs) So, you know, part of me was glad to hear that because I knew, yes, you know, that they hate me because they can't get away with anything, which means they're not going to run over me, which means I'm going to be able to teach and they're going to be able to learn. And that's the purpose we've all gathered for in the first place. But I was also sad because, you know, they, they didn't really know me and they interpreted my strictness and my authoritative uh, approach as as mean. And I wasn't, you know, I wanted to have an impact on their lives, but I stuck with the rules. And I stuck with the fear, and I was a teacher that you all had and you all hated. But by the time the spring semester rolled around, they had come to experience more of of who I really was. And they learned that I wasn't so mean after all, and that I did care about them, and I I did want them to learn. And and I was able to have an influence on them outside the classroom. Some of the students began to to stop by our house, you know, and talk with us when they had problems. And And some came to church with us, and a couple of them came to faith, and we were thankful to the Lord for that. I think for us to understand what is going on here in the verses before us, we have to remember what the nation of Israel was like at the time, what they were learning, because in many ways they were like students. This is the first time that they had ever been a nation, never before had had they been that. 
For over 400 years, they had been slaves. That's all they knew, slaves in Egypt. Joseph, their most famous ancestor, had been forgotten. God was with Joseph in a mighty and a powerful way. And as a result, Joseph found favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And so he ruled as second in command of all of Egypt. Joseph's last recorded words, he spoke to his brothers, were these, I am about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But after Joseph's death, we don't read of any of God's activity among his people from the time of Joseph until Moses. We don't know if the people remembered God at all or or what they remembered about him. God had not yet come to them. God had not yet given them the Ten Commandments. God had not yet established any sacrificial system. We don't read of any worship that took place during those 400 years. And we don't read read of anyone who, who led the people of Israel. No prophet spoke to them until Moses. We do know that when they were left on their own, their first impulse was to build a golden calf and to worship it because that's what they had seen the Egyptians do. And so from all we know, God was virtually unknown to the people. Well, Scripture then tells us that it was the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. Just three months after leaving Egypt, the people came to Mount Sinai. They saw the lightning and the thick cloud and the fire and the smoke, and they heard the thunder and the trumpet and the voice of God. Three months. That's like first semester. How well do you think the people knew God at that point? And what is it that God must instill in the people if they are going to accomplish the purpose for which he has called them, the reason that he has multiplied them into this great nation of millions of people? They've got to fear God. They've got to respect God. They have to know that God is serious about being God and that God is serious about them being his people. And so he must prove to them through this dramatic, powerful display on Mount Sinai that he is God and there is no one beside him, no one like him. He must from the beginning impress upon these people that there is true life only in him. And the life, the only way it works, the only way it flourishes, if it's lived as God commands it to be lived. And so at this point, God is ordering his classroom. He's establishing the relationships. He's setting the boundaries as they must be set so the people can learn. Learn who he is. Learn how to be the people he's called them to be. Learn how to accomplish the purpose for which God has called them. If there's fear in that, good. If there's awe in that, good. If those make the, these people respect God, If the fear and the awe cause the people to realize that the God that they are getting to know is really different from any other being and they cannot casually just buddy up to him. He's unique, completely other than they, above and beyond them in every way. And so the people must never forget Deuteronomy 4, 24. The Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That's who God is. He he never changes. He forever has the ability to consume. I hated science. I was an English teacher. But I did learn this, 
Do you remember uh, uh, the, the law of the conservation of mass? 18th century science. Antoine Lavoisier told us that matter can neither be created or destroyed. Remember that? I learned that. But long before Lavoisier, 400 years before Christ, the ancient Greeks knew the same thing. One philosopher wrote this, For it is impossible for anything to come to be from what is not, and it cannot be brought about or heard of that what is should be utterly destroyed. They knew that then. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. And that's true. Unless, of course, you are God. (laughs) And God can create out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Can you imagine? He doesn't need any materials to create. He creates the materials he uses to create. He's God. And God can also consume. He is the only one who can do absolutely what we cannot do. And we, we've for thousands of years known we can't do it. God is a consuming fire. And as God, he right now in this very moment and will forever have that power. And so you and I should be in awe of that power. But what does God want us to do with the knowledge of the power. What does God want it to produce in us? Well, now we come to the book of Malachi. It's the very last book in the Old Testament. And when we come to the end of this book, we come to 400 more years of silence. No word from God through any prophet. So Malachi is like the cliffhanger at the end of the season where we have to wait. We have to wait until the next season begins to find out what happens. So if you can Turn, if you have a pew Bible, to page 676. I'm going to read from Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 676, the very last book in the Old Testament. And this is what God says there before 400 years of silence. God says, See... This is verse 1 of chapter 3. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless. And deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So this is is who the Lord is. Before the break, before the end of the semester, before the end of the season. Who he is, he will forever be. He says he will not change, neither will his purpose. It isn't fear that God is after, according to these verses. It's purity. And God says he will be like a refiner's fire. He will purify his people, in particular, the Levites who serve as priests. God's consuming fire will burn away the sin 
Just as the heat of the fire burns away the dross and the impurities and gold and silver, making them pure, so God will purify His people, particularly the priests, so that they can lead the people in purity and be accepted in righteousness and holiness. Then the Lord turns His attention to everyone else, you know, sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers and those who defraud laborers and those who oppress the widows and the fatherless. God is a consuming fire. And that fire has the ability to consume sin. It sounds painful to me. You know, a a refining fire, a a launderer's soap. You think a washing machine is bad with that, you know, agitation. (laughs) But imagine back in this day where they took clothes out and they beat them, you know, with sticks on the rocks to get them clean. It all sounds angry to me. And yet God says, you know, don't don't fear. You know, why why should we not fear? I, I, I would be afraid. Well, we can't answer that question if we drop out after first semester or if we try to transfer to an easier class or if we don't watch the next season. Then we don't have a complete understanding of who God is. The New Testament is like the next season. The New Testament is like the next semester. The semester where God breaks into a great big smile. That's what happens. After the second 400 years of silence, the drama begins again. A new season with a dramatic season opener. First, an angel appears in the sky and the glory of the Lord around the angel. And he says, fear not, do not fear. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. And then that one angel is is joined by a host uh, of heavenly beings saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And then we see unfolding during that season. The life of Christ lived out before us. We watch him, who is God, the same God, calling little children, come to me. And he places his hands on them and he blesses them. We hear him say, love, 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 love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. We hear him saying, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. We hear him say, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then we watch as Jesus does just that. He lays down his life for his friends. For you and me, he gives his body and sheds his blood on the cross so that we can be purified. Refined like gold and silver and washed whiter than the whitest clothes. The sins that corrupt us and stain us. He removes from us when we place our faith in Him. And with our sins removed, with the stains washed away, we can then come into the presence of a holy God as purified people. And that's what God is after. A relationship with His people. Us living with Him, Him living with us, in us, that's God's goal. It's always been His goal since that relationship was broken by sin in the Garden of Eden. God's always been working in His time and in His way by His plan on accomplishing this purpose. God hasn't changed. When I was growing up, every Sunday night we watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Who, who remembers that? Is anybody here old enough to remember Wild Kingdom? 
Every Sunday night, every Sunday night, we watched Wild Kingdom. And Marlon Perkins was the host. He was always behind the camera. Jim Fowler was the, the co-host. And it seemed to me that, that he was always doing something that looked really dangerous with really dangerous-looking animals. And sometimes it seemed like in every show, Jim Fowler would bring out this gun and he would shoot a tranquilizing dart into this wild animal. And, and then we would watch as that angry wild animal, you know, slowly became calmer and calmer and finally laid down on the ground and Jim Fowler could then approach him safely. The cross of Christ is not, it is not like a dart shot into the arm of God to sedate him or to tranquilize him or to make him tame or gentle or manageable so that he's now safe to be around. God is the same. Old Testament, New Testament, the same holy, perfectly pure, righteous God with the same standards he has always had for people to come into his presence, and that is holiness. And God has not calmed down. And God has uh, not settled down in his wrath towards sin. It's just that. With his holy righteousness, those demands have been met in Christ. God's met those standards. Romans. 3.25 God presented Christ as the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice or the one who would turn aside the wrath of God through his blood 1 John 4.10 this is love not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation the atoning sacrifice or the one who would turn aside his wrath and take away our sins Christ is our propitiation God is just as angry at sin and the destruction and the devastation that it brings to to your life and mine as he always has been and as he always will be. Now and forever, just as always, sin will keep people out of the presence of God. And that's why we must have Jesus. That's why we must love Jesus. He turns aside the wrath of God from us. He is a shield around us, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. That's Psalm 3.3. Christ's sacrifice on the cross shields us from the justified wrath of God, just as the blood of the Passover lamb put over the door of the house protected the people of Israel so that the angel of death passed over them. It is Christ and Christ alone who extinguishes the consuming fire of God against us. And that's the truth that the author of Hebrews wants to get across to Hebrew people, people with this background. Look there in chapter 12. You heard it read already. The author contrasts two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is the mountain of the Old Testament and the law. And the author says to these Hebrew people, you have not come, you have not come to that mountain with its fire and darkness and gloom and storm, to the voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no word be spoken to them because they could not bear to hear what was commanded. And the sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That is not your mountain. 
Not Mount Sinai. Not anymore. And then in verse 22, the author says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And in that place is not a trembling assembly. It's what kind of assembly? A joyful assembly. Thousands and thousands gathered in joy. God is there. Jesus is there. His blood covering our sin. That's now the place for us. The kingdom of God. Jesus says in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is ours. How? Through faith in Christ. Jesus says so. And so verse 28 of chapter 12 in Hebrews talks about the kingdom that we are receiving, that it's unshakable. It's never going to go away. Nothing can shake it. Therefore, be thankful to God. Worship God with reverence and awe for this kingdom, for our God is a consuming fire. And so if you want to be afraid of God, If you want to be afraid of the consuming fire of God, be afraid of messing with the gospel. How the wrath of God must be directed at those who would pervert the gospel when he has declared with his words that the gospel is true. And when he has given his life to make the gospel true and to open heaven to us so that we would have access to a loving heavenly father how his consuming fire must burn against those who would pervert the gospel of grace, who would tell people, oh, you're looking for God over there, over there, Mount Sinai. Go there, you'll find God there. No, he's not on Mount Sinai with the law, with the legalism. He is in Mount Zion, the joyful, heavenly, free city of God. You know, you've got me as your pastor, and so that comes with all all of my baggage, but I'm just saying, don't bludgeon yourself or anyone else with this verse, as I have been bludgeoned with it in, in my lifetime. God doesn't use it to bludgeon us, that He's a consuming fire, or to keep us away from Him. He uses it to cause us to stand amazed To be in awe that we can be in the presence of the Father, that we can call Him Abba because of the Gospel. It's amazing. Reverent is not joyless. Maybe it's more like stunned shock. Stunned shock. When we realize who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. But never forget the first semester either. And all that we learned about God there. It's who He is. And He's not to be trifled with. And don't take your sins lightly because God doesn't take them lightly. And don't trivialize them. Or even worse, consider them as fun. They're destructive and they will keep you out of the presence of God forever if they are not forgiven. We're almost finished, but again from Malachi chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble 
And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. And so if you've never come to faith in Christ, you will encounter him. Not as the fire that purifies, but as the fire that destroys. And so listen, you have to place your faith in Christ. You have to place your faith in Christ if you are going to avoid the consuming fire of God. God says so. And whether or not you believe it, one day everyone will know. His is the only opinion that counts anyway. And this is what he says. So place your faith in Christ so you can know God, not as a consuming fire, but as a father. In one of his short stories, Hemingway wrote about a father in Spain who was estranged from his son. And the son had run away to Madrid. Desperate to reconcile with his son, the father ran an ad in the newspaper in Madrid with this message. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven. Paco is a common name in Spain. And so when the father went to the square, he found 800 young men named Paco waiting there to meet their father. I would be one of those 800 because I want that relationship with my father and I think we all do. A father like the one in the parable of the prodigal son who looked and saw his son coming at a distance, a son who had run away from home and lived a sinful life. But the father saw him and he ran to him and he threw his arms around him. And he kissed him. That's what the Father wants to do. Not to consume us. To throw his arms around us and embrace us as his children. And that's what we want. And so any view of God that tells you to stay away from God is, is a wrong view. In Christ, all, all is forgiven. Any of you that makes you afraid of God is a wrong view because in Christ we are told, fear not. Any view of God that makes you think you must avoid Him is a wrong view because in God, in Christ God calls us, come, come near. And any view of God that causes you to cower before God is a wrong view. In Christ we have His embrace because the gospel is true. Let this view of God be your view. And may you and I act and live in accordance with who God truly is. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you once again for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for your spirit who and dwells us and leads us into truth. You are too great for us, Lord. You are, you're infinite. And so for us to try to comprehend you is such a challenge. And so we thank you for your spirit. And I pray that your spirit would help us, Lord, view you rightly. To see you as who you are, the holy, righteous God of the universe, the God who cannot dwell in the presence of sin, God who is angry, whose wrath is against sin and its devastation and its destruction. 
A God, because who you are who you are, who cannot dwell in the presence of sin, but a God who has made a way to take care of that problem. In Christ, Lord, all your righteous demands have been met. In Him, the one who lived a perfectly holy, righteous life. He satisfies your demands. And then, Lord, He takes our place so that when you look at us, when we have faith in Christ, you look through Him and you see His holiness and perfection in us. And so for that, Lord, we give you praise and thanks. Father, I pray that all of us here would know you as our Father, that we would come to you as Father, that we would love you as Father. Lord, all the, the blessings that flow to people who have you as Father, the joy, the peace, all of that, Lord, let that impact our lives and our decisions and what we do and what we say and how we treat others because we are children of the living God. Father, for those here this morning who may not have placed their faith in you, Lord Jesus, for salvation, I pray for them and I pray that your spirit would be at work in their hearts right now. However they have viewed you in the past, Lord, I pray that they may view you now uh, through the work of Christ. I pray that you would impress upon them how easy it is to have the sin with which they struggle forgiven. How easy it is to, to come to you and to know you and to claim you as Father. Soften their hearts, Lord. Reveal to them that their opinion doesn't matter how they think it's going to be or should be. It's you and your way that counts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring them, if there be those here this morning in that situation, uh, to confess their sins and turn in faith to Christ so that they would know you not as consuming fire, but as Father. We thank you, Lord. We can do that because the gospel is true and it's in your name we pray. Amen.